Hello, and welcome to another episode of From Borderline to Beautiful. So today is the first recovery story for BPD Awareness Month, and we have Rebecca back on the, the show to share her story with us. Hey, Becca, how are you? I am good. Welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Oh, absolutely. So we had some... I have some questions that I'm going to be asking Becca to catch us so that she can catch us up on her progress and, you know, kind of let us know what recovery looks like over a long period of time. So it's pretty neat to have a, like a longitudinal case study. And Rebecca has been gracious and willing to offer that to us today. So let's start with just why don't you give a brief update for everyone of like how you've been doing, what life is like now, and then we'll go into our, our questions. Yeah, so um, in the last year since, um, I guess the last time I was on here, um, my sister and I opened a business um, in adolescent recovery substance abuse. So I wow. do all of like our licensing and our compliance and kind of the business part of it. Um, and I since then moved down to Austin to be with my husband. Um, so I moved back in with my husband and things have been Amazing. for the most part going pretty, pretty well. I mean, nothing is perfect, um, mm -hmm. but we are getting along and we're living together. And so that's really exciting. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, those are huge changes for you. That's really amazing with the recovery center. Did you want to talk more about the recovery center? Just like what that um, means to you to be a part of helping others maybe? Yeah. So um, it, it started because my brother passed away after a 20-year battle with addiction um, in yeah. 2020. And we decided to open a treatment center. Um, you know, the idea was to kind of fill in some of the holes that we saw as a family, and then um, we would be able to help others so that they didn't have to go through what we went through and what he went through. And at the same time, it's not just substance abuse, it's mental health too. So I'm able to kind of, from my perspective of having mental health um, issues throughout my life, kind of um, help people with the mental health side as well. Um, and I've actually been able to share my story a couple of times with the girls. Um, they're adolescent girls, so they're real impressionable and um, they're really fun to be around and to share the story. And they've been really, really gracious in listening to it. So that's so amazing to hear because you can give back to the community and share with them. And I'm sure it's relatable and genuine when you speak your story. So, especially with adolescents, it's like planting a seed. And then hoping that they'll kind of grow through that or remember that one day. And usually people do. So that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a great way to honor your brother's legacy. What a beautiful way to do that. So it's good that you were able to, <clears throat> excuse me, be a part of that. And you can do it remotely. You can be involved in that being with Anthony. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a really big decision to do that. Um, to come down here and to do it remotely. But in the end, I just decided that I was at a point in my recovery that I could be with my husband again, so. Yeah, I mean, such a huge, you know, leap from where you were, you know, when I first met you. So at this point, given everything that you've been through over the past few years, has the definition of recovery changed for you at all? And if so, what does recovery mean to you now? 
Yes. Um, so when I first started out and I first met you, recovery just meant that I would stop crying and I would stop fighting and I would have better relationships with everybody. Um, and I couldn't wait until that happened. And it took a lot longer for that to happen. Um, but recovery now is just, it's a, you've talked about it being on a ladder that you kind of have to start at the bottom and work your way through rungs of the ladder, um, through your recovery process. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I found that being on the higher rungs of the ladder or being in recovery means that I'm constantly working on my moral compass and that my seeing my moral compass all come together, kind of impact every aspect of recovery and what you talk about on the podcast. Oh, that's awesome. So you've kind of, you feel like you've, you have to start somewhere, right? So you're describing this, like, I don't want to live in this state of chaos. I just want to have good relationships and be calmer. That's like the, the basic goal at the bottom rung of the ladder for everyone. So even being able to see past that at the time was so difficult, but now you're at the place, it sounds like where it's clicking. The reason why a moral compass is really important in recovery is clicking for you, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to share a little bit more about that? Like, what was the point that in your recovery or in the journey where, I mean, obviously you understood moral, morality, like moral values, the moral compass when we first talked, because that was one of the reasons why I feel like you came to come, you know, like we work together in part. There was also like the Facebook group and things like that. So I knew like we had talked about it. We went over it, but how did you connect it and when did it click and why? I think that it, for me, the moral compass was really frustrating because I didn't understand why I didn't have those values. Like I didn't understand why not lying was so hard or why discipline was so hard. And I felt like I was just kind of running in circles trying to grasp onto those skills. But mm -hmm. um, I kind of realized Within the last couple of months, things started to click because I realized that when I had all of my moral values, then I was doing better. And so mm -hmm. I, the biggest example I use is with my working out because I think I talked about last time that I was a gymnast, but I hate working out yeah. and I still hate working out. <laughs> um, yeah. But when I don't do it and I lie about it, so I don't have the discipline and I'm lying about it to my husband that I did it, that I did it and I didn't really do it. And then I don't have commitment and it's like a string of moral compass values that I'm not participating in that when I do the opposite and I make that commitment and then I don't have anything to lie about and I'm being disciplined and it all just kind of flows from there. And then I was like, wait a minute. So when I have all of these moral values and they're all coming together, then I'm more calm and I'm doing better. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So you needed the evidence and you needed to believe in the evidence, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. And that took time. Yeah. That took time to, Absolutely. Kind, of, to kind of see that, um, that it worked, that if I could just stay disciplined in having my moral compass values, that I could see progress. And with being able to see progress, then I could do it again and again and again. For sure. Is there was there a time where you did some of the values, but you weren't quite bought into it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I I still use that working out example because I would work out. I started working out more, 
And I was like happy with that. And I was like, okay, now mm. I'm working out three or four days a week. Like that's enough. And my husband would be like, well, come on, I'll work out with you, you know, two days a week. Let's make it five or six days a week that you're working out. And it was like, I was always telling myself that it was enough when it wasn't enough because being disciplined is, is black and white. You either do it or you don't. Um, yeah. And so it took me, I had a conversation with you where you said, just do it every day for six weeks. Just do it. Try it for six weeks. And after six weeks, if you want to try something different, then do that, but be committed for six weeks. And I did. And then now I've stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. You just needed to, you need, there's at some point in recovery, well, actually I would think, and you can attest to this maybe about, about how at every rung of the ladder, you have to leap to do the thing that whoever you're going to see, whether it be me or maybe for someone else out there, what, whatever provider they're seeing to just do the thing that they're telling you to do. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, you have power over your own choice. You can then go back and change or switch or, you know, think of some something else. And it's in the not leaping that people stay stuck at these different rungs of the ladder. Can you relate to that? Yes. Like when we were working in the beginning, you were trying to get me to take these leaps and I would say I would do them and then I wouldn't really do them. And then I was staying stuck and we worked together for like four months and I really didn't go anywhere because I just wouldn't do it. We talked about the kettlebell challenge. We talked about, um, we talked about getting involved in any kind of program. And I just, I was like, I'll just run, you know, I'll just, I'll just kind of do what I want to do. And you, your point was like, well, you doing what you want to do isn't working. So try doing what I'm asking you to do. And then you'll start making you know, you might see differences. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you doing that was probably one of the biggest turning points is like you just taking these steps into doing the thing that you're scared to do. There's no shame in the fact that it takes people time to, to leave, right? You, and, you know, and you know that for yourself, right? It's just, it's your process. And having trauma means having a lot of, you know, lack of trust. So it's hard to say, oh, I'm just going to tell you to do this and you're going to blindly follow along. It's not really, doesn't really work that way for most people, right? Yeah. Right. You know, it's interesting. You said it's frustrating because you didn't understand why like certain moral values are so hard, like not lying. And so I think you can appreciate the story. So we're going to go off the questions a minute. Uh, we were watching King of Queens. It's like this old, I don't know if you remember that show from a while ago. It's like a comedy sitcom. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's it was like, pretty old so it's more innocent in some of the comedy and one of the things that happened on the show was they were all playing board games it was like fam friends playing board games together and carrie wanted to win so badly she just flipped the timer over when no one was looking like she cheated and so her husband saw her cheat and he made this huge deal of it and i remember this was like not very long ago i thought in my mind like man I'm having a hard time. Like, I know logically that that's really wrong, but I really have to think through, like, Doug's reaction to the flipping over of the timer because the old me, I mean, I remember growing up, like, playing games with my mom. She would 
encourage me to cheat when I was playing checkers. So it was never like a big deal, right? Like I never process stuff like that as a big deal. Do you feel that? Yeah. Like I, yes, because I was, you know, I, I tell my husband a lot, like I've been doing the same things for 38 years. It's hard to break a cycle when you've been doing those things for so long. Um, but you know, in those kind of examples, like I see my husband get upset about it and I have to kind of stop and think, and I'm like, wait, he's upset because he is seeing me do something that I used to do and he's wanting me to be better. And it took me a really, really long time because I always took offense to it because he was holding me accountable and I didn't want to be held accountable because I had always gotten away with it before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's very well said. And at the end of the day, it does really matter. And that is part of having a moral compass, because as you, I mean, I would, I'm going to assume, so I'll ask it in question form instead, like, as you proceed forward in having this stricter adherence and discipline towards moral values that you've created, do you feel like, uh, like, sometimes you see why more like you start to understand why being honest is important not just that you know logically but emotionally why being compassionate and humble and honesty really matters in the big picture yeah because i mean that's what having having those moral those moral values that's the reason why i'm able to be more calm and i'm able to you know get along with people because i have the moral values not not because I was it was never working before because people don't didn't like that kind of behavior. Right. That answers the question. No, it does. It does. I was thinking about the um board game example that I gave you and what I was what I process because I can process like uh, big picture things now. That's part of what you're learning to do. And that's like the one of the biggest, I think, factors in having a stable life in the end is being able to connect to morality because most people are like good people mix of good and bad but most people do follow that those societal rules so i thought about it and i thought well if she flips over the timer and she can she's capable of lying in a group of people that she claims to be her friends then she's capable of lying about anything And those thoughts and those realizations about moral development, I think, really are game-changing in recovery. Do you agree? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what are some ways you've elevated recovery using your moral compass? Some specific examples, if if possible. So um, the biggest thing is I've just been able to... um, manage boundaries a lot better, both other people's respecting other people's boundaries and being able to set my own boundaries, um, specifically with my family. Um, you know, I was always in a cycle of like, no, I'm not going to talk to you or, you know, no, I need time. But then as soon as they would call me or they wanted something or I needed something, then I would just call them. And then people would be like, I thought you weren't talking to me or, you know, that those kinds of examples. Um, But now I'm able to say, you know, I need time and actually give myself time because I recognize that I need it. Like I'm asking for it because I need it. Um, And I was never able to do that before. Um, And then another one is um, I've just, I'm just a lot more calm. Like I just, like 
it's like I've had my mom even comment. She's just like, you're just so calm. You just maybe like this is just your personality and maybe this was your personality all along, but you were always so revved up all the time that, you know, nobody, including myself, like realized like how actually calm I really am. It's very strange to kind yeah. of be in this place, but it's nice because I'm happy. Yeah, that's awesome. I can, I, you know, I'm pausing because it's so relatable. I remember that. There's no medication. So to be clear, are you taking medication that's different? Are you doing anything like that substance-wise that would create the calm? No, not at all. No. Yeah, exactly. So the calm is uh, something that you achieve when you just know you're doing the right thing, right? Yeah, it is. And it's, it was just like, and it was, it's really strange because it's just all of, it was just like all of a sudden when I started to really be in recovery and I started to be calm and I started to be happy, it's almost like this realization that you're like, whoa, like I'm finally getting there. I'm finally there. Um, so it's kind of like a strange moment at first when you realize it, but. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love what your mom said too, because I was talking with someone the other day about recovery and what the actual like definition is if you were to Google it. And it's something like walking back or returning to a normal state of mental and physical health. Another one was regaining of something that's been lost, right? So for your mom to say then, well, maybe this is how you were all along. Like I, I tend to agree with that in a lot of ways. I feel like you were, when you were like what, 10, 11, 12 years old, you weren't this revved up, like, you know, very intense person. You're just a kid, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you were able to regain possession of who you were, you know, truly are. I mean, we're still different, right? You want to speak on that a little bit of how you still can see that some differences even within the moral framework? Yeah, I still get in situations where like the other day I was at work and I had to clean like the the microwave and it was disgusting. And I did it anyway because of integrity. It's just what I'm supposed to do. But I remember thinking, uh, maybe I'll just like, you know, do the easy parts and like leave the disgusting part and it'll be fine because nobody else does it anyway either. Like I would be the first one to do it. So just like, and I have to stop and actually think about like the fact that I actually think through it. Um, you know, I know that that's different from like normal people who they just either do it or they don't do it. They don't sit and like think about the whole process. Um, and so yeah, I find myself true. doing that a lot or I find myself like stopping and thinking and, you know, why is this person upset? Why is my husband upset right now? You know, is it something I did? Is it something that he's just upset about? Um, a lot of times it's me and I have to stop and think about, well, what, what BPD thing am I doing right now that is causing him to react? Um, and then I have to kind of analyze that and, you know, act accordingly. Yeah. It speaks to the level of self-awareness that needs to um, be achieved in recovery. Do you ever think back to like the way things were like before I knew you before, like a long time ago and wonder how you got from there to here? Yes. Um, you know, I know the hard work that I've put in it though. And I know the steps that I've taken and it's been, it's been two years since I got my diagnosis of BPD. And I think the th biggest thing is I just wish that it would have been 
caught a lot sooner. Someone would have told me that I was borderline like a lot sooner because I would have, um, it would have been a lot of years that I could have been recovered, you know. Wow. You know, I had a, a, um, a random call from, not a, a random call, but a random email from a reporter for USA Today, this counseling magazine, and he wanted to have this interview with me and I did it yesterday. And one of, he was, he's a clinician too and a journalist. And one of the questions he asked me was, he kept saying, it's, it's hard to diagnose BPD. And he said, because he owns a practice too, and he's writing the story for from my perspective for other clinicians to read about treating BPD. And one of the questions was, like, if if uh, the clinician knows the individual has BPD, should they tell them? How do you disclose that information if you're worried that person's going to struggle? Isn't it better to not tell them? Or to not disclose that like what do you do with that especially like what if you're wrong in the diagnosis and what you said is exactly what i told him i would wonder if someone else thought that along the line and then all of that time wasted because someone made an emotional judgment call about your life i think that's wrong do you feel that yes absolutely i um you know i was diet i talk about in the last episode that i did that I was diagnosed with um, bipolar for 25 years. And yeah. it does make you think like, did someone just not tell me what they were really thinking or did they just go off of the doctor before and the doctor before and the doctor before? You know, there could be multiple reasons why I spent 25 years not getting the help that I needed, you know, but I am truly appreciative to you and to my journey that I'm here today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's great that you can balance the two. And I'm also really glad that you spoke on that because I can, you know, I'm, they said, he said something like it would be published in the fall. So to have that reference and to have your story on there and you saying that would be beneficial for so many people, clinicians. I had a similar story, not 25 years, but, you know, it's sometimes when a medical provider or a psychiatrist or someone in the field wants to preserve their own emotion or somehow like protect the individual in front of them by not revealing what the diagnosis is or by not looking into it deeply, they really impact negatively the person's, you know, journey. So I know it was not, not on the list, but it's really really powerful to, to share that, especially Borderline Personality Disorder Awareness Month. And your gratitude, even in the midst of being, you know, misdiagnosed for years, it, it really does attest to your growth. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. So what is it, like the level of self-awareness you had, we talked a little bit about this with the microwave and the process. I think sometimes maybe neurotypical people do think through like whether or not they should do the right thing, but, but I agree like not to the degree that, you know, you have to on the, this particular rung of the ladder that you're on because you're, you're working through morality, which is something that we should have done when we were, you know, young or middle age or middle school, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it is more deliberate. Go ahead. Yeah. It was just, it's just, um, I, I guess I'm kind of transitioning from like the little picture of, 
you know, I used to do a moral compass like one at a time. This this month I'm going to really work on commitment or this month I'm really going to work on honesty um, because at that time I had to focus very small. And now that I'm able to see bigger picture, I'm kind of transitioning from um, things as pieces or parts into things mm-hmm. as a So when I encounter situations where the morality is questioned, I have to go from the whole picture of what the issue is down to and break it back down into the smaller pieces to understand it. I guess that's the best way to explain the process. Absolutely. And are you, how do you do that? So we, we don't see each other, right? Not very often, maybe once in a while, right? Maybe once a year something like that. So how, who supports you in doing that? If anyone, and how do you go about that process for people who are doing it themselves? So I realized that in all of this, in the last two years that I've been working on this, I've more or less done it on my own. I have had Mm -hmm support from my husband or my parents that only recently I was able to understand their support. Um, So an example is that I am working on my MBA right now. I wanted to quit because it was hard and I wasn't doing well. My husband got upset with me. Um, We got in a fight about it. And then I, when I like reflected on it, I realized that I was not having commitment, I wasn't having discipline, and that he was actually supporting me. He wasn't being mean, and he wasn't actually, he was only being mad because of the support that he was giving me. Um, And that by him, you know, he said, I'm helping pay for this, and that by him, like, actually paying, that's his way of showing me love. It's just different than what I was expecting to hear from him or to get from him. And it's the same with my family, too. Like, it's not that they don't support me. It's just they they can't really help if they don't know how. Um, so anybody right. doing it on their own, I would just say that, you know, you can't give up and you have to take the leaps, the leaps of trust in order to progress through the rungs of the ladder. Oh, yeah, that's very well said. 100%. I mean, you're... Um, Ability to understand. I mean, I kind of laugh a little bit because we talked about the NBA thing and I didn't really know the update to that. So totally get it. But like, that's great that you're able to realize actually he loves me. He wants to see me follow through on something. And his intention is what's important because no one is perfect. Right. I think like with the hyper focus on the behavior, like, oh, BPD, right? There's so much hyper focus on, you know, Rebecca's illness that we forget. And I know I felt that way for a long time too, is that we forget that normal people, quote unquote, they struggle. So they're not perfect. And he's not. He doesn't always react to things perfectly. He, you know, he's human. And so you seeing his intention and his love through his intention and the way that he loves you, that's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it was only recently that I really was able to understand um, that about him or anybody just to be able to mentalize other people was a big step in the ladder. Um, Just because I had to get outside of myself and think about other people in order to understand how um, interconnected um, myself and or me and my BPD were with other people. 
um, and that that's what was shaping the relationships that I had. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because in, in, when you first started out, it was more like they were hurting you. They were attacking you. They didn't understand you. So now how has that shifted? Um, it's like, they don't, they don't attack me. It's that they're only reacting, whether they're reacting poorly or not poorly. They're just reacting to poor behaviors that I'm exhibiting. Um, and so I had to understand that it wasn't innocent me and that they were just reacting in a bad way, that they were reacting more or less to the bad behaviors that I had. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's awesome that you can have that realization because it allows you to love them again, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people will ask, how how do you forgive family members? And I'm, I think the answer that I've always come back to with whether or not you know your marriage is right, rather, whether or not you know your you know, friends and family are good people or supportive is if you have enough clarity and if you've had enough time in a stable mindset with your, you know, this moral structure to the way that you're living your life, you just will forgive them. It will happen. It will come. And I think this is something maybe you could speak on a little. Yeah. Um, it's not even like, I always thought it was like a process of forgiveness. It's not even to me really a process. It's more of like, because I'm calm and because my relationships have improved because my behavior has improved the relationships have gotten better and then it's like i enjoy this relationship you know whatever happened before it was in the past and i don't i'm not mad at them anymore because i enjoy being around them now and so that really is what what forgiveness is it's deciding that um, whatever they've done is um, that you you can forgive whatever they've done that you're done punishing them for it um, you know and so when I'm enjoying these relationships with these people you know I'm I'm clearly not punishing them anymore you know because I'm I love them yeah because your relationships have become transactional instead of just really ego focused or focused on what you needed and what you wanted right so now you're starting to have that love for other people that's awesome yeah yeah i mean it's your story is really beautiful and you know for people out there listening you know let's go back if you're new to the podcast and listen to rebecca's first story the first time she was here on the podcast and then you know maybe re-listen to this one because hope is in the stories of other people i can speak about my experience but rebecca didn't have the same experience that i had she didn't have the same life that i had she did this you know a similar process to what i did and she is experiencing the life that i had and he didn't have a J either, did you? You kept saying, no, like, oh, I didn't, I didn't have a J. So another thing is she did it, you know, without having a part, a corrective relationship. She does have a, a loving husband, though they were living apart. And there was a lot of animosity and resentment that had built over the years. So it wasn't the same. It wasn't, you know, that encouraging, firm boundaries, you know, a lot of the time, if that's fair to say, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And 
you know, he still has a hard time trusting um, yeah, all the time. The the more calm and relaxed and consistent that I am day after day, um, that has really helped. But mm. when I have a bad behavior, then he really kind of coils in again. Um, you know, and so then it takes me a little bit of time again to kind of rebuild that trust, not not years or months, you know, usually a couple, you know, hours or days. Um, but he, the trust from other people is a lot slower than the trust from myself. So. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to share how you're going to proceed forward to continue to build that trust? Yeah, I mean, I just have to wake up every day and I have to, um, the biggest thing with my relationship with my family and with him is that, is the consistency of being calm. So when I react and I react poorly, then the relationship suffers a little. But if I can react, I can walk away, I can take some deep breaths, um, and I can kind of let it go, then um, I'm a lot more successful, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So you can, it's that, it's every day almost like studying yourself. Because if we think about like, what work did you really do from point A to point B from when you started until now? And it's this just being so brutally honest with the dysfunction of your behavior and really understanding that the rest of the world just doesn't operate in this emotional realm. And that if you keep living that way, you're going to be disconnected from people, right? Right. And yeah, I mean, there was this whole, for a long time, a lot of the fighting was about the fact that I talked about emotions all the time. That's, I just wanted to fix, I was always just trying to fix the emotion that I was feeling or that I was working off of. And that's not a relationship to just talk about feelings. That's not, there's no depth in that. There's no, it's not fun. So when I started to recover, then I quit talking about that stuff. And we started like bonding and doing things together and talking about other things. And there wasn't a need to talk about emotions anymore because there was no emotion, but calm and happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, I just remember you going on. What what am I supposed to talk about? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a time where you couldn't wrap your mind around it. And that's so for everyone out there listening, there will be a time where you can't wrap your mind around some of the things that you hear in DBT on the podcast in general in life. And it's okay that you can't understand it. That's why this is a learning process. And I just brought up that whole King of Queens carry cheats in the game. There was a time where I would have thought there was nothing wrong with that. Right. And it's, it is what it is, right? Now I don't feel that way anymore. And now, you know, Rebecca doesn't feel that way anymore. It's, just, it's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It feels good. So if, is there anything else that you wanted to share about your new level of self-awareness and any other like understandings of how to get through moral dilemmas and how this has changed your, you know, the, your thoughts and your words and your deeds? Um, I think just that um, 
having the moral compass, just life is a lot better now just because of the moral compass work. Like, you know, we talk about, we talk about boundaries and we talk about, you know, all these other things on the podcast, but it really all comes down to the moral compass. Um, even like the identity was really important too, but I was building the identity while working on the moral compass. And when you have the two together, that really is like the recipe for success. Um, you know, I, I never at the beginning didn't understand why you didn't believe in DBT or not believe in it, but why you didn't go off of DBT and you kind of had this, well, identity and moral compass, identity and moral compass. And it's like when I figured out what makes me me, and then I was able to be consistent in doing the right thing, then, you know, things got better. And it's just kind of, it really is just amazing. It is. It's mind blowing. I'm so glad that you got that, that calm feeling. Now, I can you describe what the calm feels like? It's not happy all the time, but what is it happy. in your, yeah. It's just um, clarity. Um, I don't react to everything. I don't cry every day. I have the ability to hear things that I don't like and deal with them in a way that does not make me upset to the point where I have to cry or get violent or be a tyrant. Um, I'm just kind of wake up every day and go through my day in, you know, the best possible way um, without all of the, without all of the anxiety and the fear that I had on an everyday basis before. Yeah, that's, it's amazing. That's an, a great way to describe it. And so that, I mean, hopefully people listening will get hope from that because it is a really uh, hopeful thing to say that I, it's not that you're happy all the time. Life isn't perfect, right? I think that's a misconception when people come on and tell their recovery stories. And even like with my journey, you and I would joke about that sometimes. No one has a perfect life. So it's not like you're never going to have an emotion and it's not like you're never going to have an over the top emotion again. It's that you can handle it, not feel desperate. I know for myself, it's the desperation that I always recognize. I used to feel desperation whenever I was emotional as if there was never going to be a landing. I would just free fall forever mm-hmm. and not feeling that is, is the calm. That's how I describe it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of describing it as well. Yeah. I'm just never in that position where I don't know what's going to happen next, you know, but I, yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's freeing, isn't it? Very, very, very. So do you have any advice this season for listeners based on your recovery path? Um, my advice this time is probably just to understand that you have to take the risks. You have to take the, like, you have to trust and take some risks. Um, you know, without risk, there is not reward. And yeah. um, that, you know, the the climbing the rungs of the ladder, it takes time and that everybody's going to do it in their own time. Um, but that it can happen, that the hope is out there and it definitely can happen. Because I never thought I'd yeah. be here. I really didn't. I told you that I was never going to get there. 
Yes, you did. And we joked the last time. I mean, it was, you were very stubborn, right? So the fact that you got from where you were to where you are now, and you're using your strength and tenacity to, you know, pursue a good life is, it's amazing. It's amazing to me. And I, you know, I hope that people can see how even in its comp, like how difficult it was for you and how complicated it was for you and, and with the stubbornness and everything we joked about the last time we talked that really, it's just simple. Don't lie every day, wake up, like just be a good person. And it seems like such a foreign concept in the beginning on that first rung of the ladder. And even like in the middle it does, because it's like, well, how long do I have to be good? Is there going to be a return on my investment of not lying and like mentalizing other people and regulating my emotions? And Rebecca, your story really isn't a testament to the answer. It's yes, right? It, it is going to get better, right? Yes, it does. It does. Just the fact that I'm here and I have this story and that I'm living with my husband that left me, you know, at one point and that everything is, you know, I'm just everything that I've accomplished or am accomplishing and working on in my life, it's it's because I've worked really, really hard on that moral compass. Yep, dreams don't work unless you do. It's like your sign in the background. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and do you have any advice because it is BPD Awareness Month? Um, any advice or um, final things to say for providers, clinicians who are working with someone who was you know, like you and I, I had, I was very kind of volatile, stubborn when I was going through that beginning phase. And so any advice from your point of view to clinicians who are working with someone with BPD? Yeah. I just think going back and just being honest and explaining, explaining what it is and explaining that there, that it is not like a sentence that you're going to be that way forever. Um, you know, it was explained to me that medicine wasn't going to cure it, but that it was just a change in my mind and that it was going to be hard, but I was going to have to make it. I mean, my clinician told me that. And um, I, I was at that point prepared to do it. And so I think being honest and letting people know that you suspect this or that this is what you're treating them with is a lot better way to go than to let them live like that without them knowing, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I would, you know, I think that 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 in not telling a person, it takes away their freedom of choice. So even if they're going to react negatively, or even if you as a clinician aren't going to get that money that you're making on that session or your productivity or whatever, and, and you have some sort of fear, remember that. And, you know, you're saying this, right, Rebecca, that you want to offer the person at least a choice. Mm -hmm. Taking away someone's choice because you think they're going to react a certain way it just perpetuates the stigma of mental illness and, and that people with mental illness are somehow less than in society, for sure, sure. Well, and you are a testament to why the truth needs to be told to people so that they can recover. I mean, it's it's amazing what you've done. You you see the world differently, you think about the world differently. So you are a recovery story, right? A success story. Yeah, I am, thank yeah. you. Yeah. You're welcome. Any last words, final thoughts? Nope, I think that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the show. And I think we'll just keep having you come back because, you know, <laughs> having 
you on the show and watching the progress from where you were to now and people can hear that just continues to provide hope and also right people ask a lot about remission and what you're saying will have to theorize or hypothesize that your belief about remission is similar to mine right where probably your whole paradigm has shifted so how could you walk back to being the person who was desperate what do you think of that and then i never could like i just like i get so frustrated if i if i get in a place where i'm not where i'm kind of traveling back down the path of having a bpd moment and um i just could never go back just never i'm happy yeah, I, and why would you ever not want to feel this way and on that note i think we can end i agree thank All you right. so much again becca thank you